The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us to get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. Hello, I'm Roger Hearing. And a very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepkin. Well, we begin this episode with the pandemic as a study has found that coronavirus infections have fallen significantly in England in recent weeks. That is a big boost to the Prime Minister who's weighing how to reopen the economy. So, Roger, according to the Imperial College and Ipsos Mori study, uh, the um, prevalence of the virus has dropped by about two thirds. The number of infected people this month is about 51 per 10,000, and that is down from over 150 per 10,000 in January. Well, Professor Paul Elliott says the REACT survey, as it's called, suggests restrictions have had a huge impact on infection rates. At the moment, the prevalence levels are still very, very high. We just have to get them down further. It is really encouraging news, what we've seen uh, reported today that, that the, the virus is on the way down. The R value is robustly below one. Well, that said, more than 20,000 COVID-19 patients are still in hospital in the UK. Although new cases and hospital admissions are falling, they're still relatively high. Well, let's talk about this with our guest today, Harriet Baldwin, Conservative MP for West Worcestershire. Harriet, welcome to the programme and thank you so much for being with us. Now, we all know there's a big date in the diary circled in red, which is Monday, when the Prime Minister is due to announce at least some idea of how we come out of the lockdown. If you were talking to him today or tomorrow, what would you be saying to him in terms of what you'd like to hear on Monday? Well, I think the biggest uh, concern for everyone at the moment is, of course, the impact that this has had on the economy. And we all want to start the path to economic recovery as quickly as possible. And that means vaccinating the UK at the fastest possible pace that uh, we could uh, imagine. And the vaccine uh, programme has rolled out faster than people were expecting. As you've just summarised, the impact in terms of infection rates is beginning to really show and hospitalisation rates are coming down very sharply. So we want him to react to that data, uh, keep up the very, very blistering pace on the vaccinations and get the economy reopened as quickly as possible and schools returned. Yes, absolutely. Um, on the other hand, the vaccine news is, is excellent, but the UK has lost a lot of people to coronavirus. Should the Prime Minister be guided by numbers uh, by hospitalisation rates and so on, rather than simply by dates? Well, of course, uh, ultimately it's about the numbers, but also it's really important when you're doing something as strategic as this to put in some stretch targets in terms of dates. And the whole system rallied to uh, vaccinate the most vulnerable four categories, uh, 15 million people uh, by the middle of February. It's now working very rapidly 
to uh, vaccinate the remaining nine, or it's, it's going to be nine categories in total, so the remaining five categories uh, as quickly as possible. And I think that's the absolutely crucial thing is uh, it's all dependent on the supply of the manufacturer's vaccine. And we just want to make sure that it's done at as cracking pace as is feasible so that we can come out of these restrictions and the economy can rebound as quickly as possible. Well, I, I hear you saying as quickly as possible, as soon as possible. You are a senior member of the COVID recovery group of, of, of MPs, Conservative MPs. You've been putting a lot of pressure. A number of your colleagues in that group have been saying, no, right now is what we should do is uh, lift the restrictions almost like tomorrow or next week. They're very pushy on that. But many people outside that say, well, hang on, science doesn't necessarily suggest that. Where do you stand on that spectrum? Yeah, we've been pushing for schools to open um, by March the 8th at the latest and for all restrictions to be uh, ended by the beginning of May because that's based on the science of how long it takes to uh, for bodies to actually have the right antibodies after a vaccination and based on the current pace in terms of vaccination rollout. And of course, we understand that's uh, based on the supply of manufacturing. Um, and we just want that to be as rapid as possible. The UK has run a very successful uh, vaccine task force that has secured enough uh, doses of the vaccine uh, for everyone to be vaccinated. Uh, it's just a question of how quickly they can mm. be manufactured and then, of course, how quickly they can be put into people's arms. And we're just trying to keep up the pressure for that to be as quick as possible. OK. Matt Hancock, though, um, only this week advocating ceasefires in war-torn places around the world in order to facilitate vaccine rollouts in places like Yemen. Should we be vaccinating Britons and Britons first only, or should we pause at some point and actually follow up with deed as well as word when it comes to giving vaccines to, you know, perhaps more disadvantaged countries around the world? I think what we should be doing is both. So we're cracking through the most vulnerable categories, uh, the first nine categories. Um, obviously, it's um, great to see that take-up has been much, much higher in the UK than people had been expecting, which is great news. Um, but we've also secured more vaccine than we need for the UK population. And I think it's absolutely right that we've been uh, a leading contributor to the international facility uh, for vaccines. And we realise that we won't be able to open up to international travel and open up global Britain until the whole world has been vaccinated. And I do think the UK has got a leading role to play in that. Now, let me just talk to you, Harriet, about the, the budget issue, which is, is very, very key at the moment. Uh, Rishi Sunak, of course, talking potentially about balancing the books in some form. A lot of people are saying that's got to be a long way off. But there was a fascinating piece came out from the Resolution Foundation. I think you may well have seen that, warning 8% of UK workers expect to lose their jobs. I mean, the figures include people who've already been told they'll be made redundant, young people and lowest earners at greater risk. Just have a listen to the think tank's senior economist, Nai Cominetti, saying staff must be protected how we withdraw the job retention scheme is really crucial. So it shouldn't be done in a cliff edge, hard stop way. That's what we were about to do last autumn before it was extended at the last minute. And then we saw redundancies go up as a result. So we think it should happen in a phased way. That was Nye Cominetti of the Resolution Foundation. A separate British Chambers of Commerce survey found a quarter of 1,100 businesses polled are planning job cuts if government support programmes end as they're currently planned to do, Harriet, in April. So should Rishi Sunak now be saying, no, we're going to extend much further, possibly towards the uh, the end of the year? Is that, is that the way forward? 
Yeah, so we'll get the timetable set out on the 22nd of February. And I do think it's important to have dates in that as well as data because uh, businesses need dates to be able to plan, don't they? Um, but I also think that, as you rightly point out, uh, the, bu the budget on the 3rd of March is going to be crucial. And uh, also uh, making sure that the support for businesses that has been there while they've been required to close by the government remains in place for as long as they are required to be closed by the government. So there has got to be synchronicity, if that's the right word, between uh, the end date for the support that's being given to businesses and the measures that will enable them to open up and welcome customers back in again. And I think everyone accepts that and we would expect that the timetable and the budget reflect that. Mm, okay, but in principle, how long should that be expended for? So I think that if the government is requiring your business to be shut to customers, uh, then the government obviously needs to provide support for those employees. I think as soon as businesses are able to welcome uh, customers again, I think there will be enormous pent-up consumer spending um, and there will be uh, a recruitment and people going back into work uh, from uh, positions where they're currently furloughed um, as soon as that's happened. And what you're um, also uh, being able to see is the fact that there's something like, uh, I think the Bank of England said some £150 billion worth of money ready to be spent um, as soon as restrictions are lifted. And mm. Uh, the, you know, the Prime Minister is absolutely right that this has got to be seen as being the final uh, lifting of restrictions. He doesn't want to impose a lockdown again in the future. And that's why he's, you know, taking this carefully and basing it on the science and the data. What about, though, the, the timing in terms of paying for all this, in terms of raising taxes? At what point should the, should, should the Chancellor be thinking about how he's going to sort out public finances further on down the line? Yeah, this is a really interesting question, and I'm on the Treasury Select Committee. We're about to publish a report um, on what the tax position should be after this coronavirus pandemic. It has been the most devastating impact since the war on the public finances and clearly completely unsustainable. So something will need to happen. Um, the Conservative manifesto on which I was elected um, has pledged not to increase uh, VAT, national insurance or income tax. So those are ruled out. But you um, have got to expect at some point that the Chancellor will have to increase taxes. Now, all the economists who gave us evidence on the Treasury Select Committee said that it was too soon uh, to raise taxes as we come out. Um, but I do think that the Chancellor will be thinking of pencilling in those in pretty soon because of the political timetable, um, which is that obviously there'll be a general election probably in 2024, and he won't want to be raising taxes in the year run up so for that. So he will need to get those tax then, increases perhaps? in now. As soon as this autumn then, this year? Well, I, I, I think that um, it, it's never pleasant, is it, to raise taxes. Mm. Um, so, but I think he will be um, urging um, his officials to look at things ha that we can do sooner rather than later because of this political timetable. Harriet, if I can throw in a last quick question about the testing. South Africa variant testing is happening in Worcestershire. It's one of the focuses. How's it going? 
Yes, I think um, it's gone very uh, well. Um, I understand there was just the one case, but um, uh, testing capacity is now extremely ample in the UK. And we've also got this very sophisticated genomic sequencing capability, which has been put to full use during uh, the pandemic. And uh, now it's all about rolling out the vaccines and making sure the vaccines keep up to date with any possible mutations. But the scientists seem very confident that that's going to be possible, that we may just need a booster every week from now on. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Let's go to a bit of a political news then, shall we, this morning, with the Labour Party uh, setting out its pre-budget pitch, Roger, expecting to hear from uh, Labour leader Keir Starmer to say that failed Conservative ideology is what has left Britain's economy exposed to the coronavirus pandemic. Starmer has said that the government should reverse plans to cut universal credit, give more funding to councils, also extend the VAT cut for businesses in hospitality and leisure. All of this, of course, ahead of Rishi Sunak, uh, the Chancellor's budget on the 3rd of March. And also an interesting appointment to the Cabinet. Boris Johnson's appointed his former Brexit negotiator, David Frost, to join the table. Lord Frost will now be a Minister of State in the Cabinet Office. His responsibilities will include working on domestic reform and leading the committee that manages Britain's post-Brexit ties with the EU. Now, Lord Frost has been Johnson's representative for Brexit and international policy, but his elevation to the Cabinet now gives him a place at the heart of government. Now, the move has retracted some criticism from Labour and the FT is suggesting a power struggle is taking place at Downing Street with Michael Gove said to be being sidelined by the Prime Minister after Frost allegedly threatened to resign unless he was given this particular job. Hmm. Meanwhile, on other issues, the Times has learnt that almost 5,000 Hong Kongers have already applied for the UK's visa route, uh, which uh, opened a fortnight ago. Uh, The new immigration route for British national overseas passport holders from Hong Kong opened for applications on the 31st of January. It offers up to 5.4 million Hong Kongers a five-year visa and also a path to full British citizenship. So the government has said that it expects about 300,000 people people to use the scheme in its first five years, adding a number uh, that the size of Coventry actually to the country's population. This is one that's being closely watched, not just in London, but also in Beijing. Inevitably, yes. And finally, a story that is definitely very much front and centre of a lot of people's thoughts here in the UK, which is Prince Philip. The Duke of Edinburgh is said to be in good spirits after being taken to hospital in London as a precaution. The 99-year-old who was feeling unwell was admitted on Tuesday evening. The palace says it's not COVID-19 related and they say he'll be kept in for a few days of observation and rest. Right, all of that in uh, top political news this morning. Uh, Also, we had out an interesting report today from the Resolution Foundation, uh, which says that 1.9 million people in January had either been out of work or on full furlough for more than six months. 
But Tech UK says that employers have actually continued to recruit staff for tech roles and that there has been a huge increase in the number of people looking to acquire digital skills in that time period. And joining us now is the Tech UK CEO, Julian David, um, the big trade association, of course, for uh, tech and IT. Julian, is it really the case then, um, as you know, the Resolution Foundation and, and just the jobs figures show how much pressure um, the employment picture is under in the UK. Is it still the case that IT and IT roles are, are being recruited during the pandemic? Absolutely. Um, and, and we're seeing that uh, across across the sector. Obviously, there are some parts of the sector, depending on where their particular customers are, that, that are doing less well. But by and large, we have a, a real huge demand for tech. And this is only going to accelerate, in our view, as more and more businesses, particularly smaller businesses, and businesses that weren't that digital before, like hospitality and so on, are beginning to get into the digital age and beginning to move forward. So digital skills, A, are essential. B, there are jobs. So get, get the digital skills, and you can have a digital job. That's the message. Well, that's, that is a key point. We talk about skills there. Are the skills actually out there? Are British workers up to doing those kind of jobs? Because that's often been a complaint of your industry in the past. Yes, and, and there are two aspects to that, Roger. The first is uh, it's a global industry, and to be at the, at the leading edge of that, you've got to have the best global skills. So we do need access to global skills. Uh, that includes European skills. But what we do need, though, is also to make this uh, industry open to all, all of the people across the UK, including all demographics. We're underrepresented in many geographic areas. We're underrepresented in many uh, of our communities uh, and ethnic groups. Uh, and we've only just started to get our act together on, on, on gender and, and, and female employment as well. So, you know, there's a great opportunity, a lot to do, and we need to get skills available to everybody. And we in Tech UK are working on that with the government and trying mm -hmm. to get the industry uh, even more focused on this. Yeah, no, I know my daughter who's eight is learning how to code, um, which is fascinating, something that I have never Absolutely. touched myself. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, and I've learned as much as she has. So it's, it is really good. But there is pressure, isn't there? Um, because the government has talked a lot about the, not just the green future, but the tech future of the UK outside of the mm -hmm. EU. What can Rishi Sunak, what should he be doing in the budget to try to encourage that to happen as we kind of try to turn the UK tanker as it were to new tech so so he's he's got to obviously continue support sectors that have been hard hit by the pandemic not everybody can get to tech straight away not everybody can adopt tech straight away so he's, he's got to continue doing that but he's also got to set out a plan for growth that must be tech-based and green tech-based as well because there's also a great opportunity uh, from the clean economy decarbonization so the two things that need to happen there are uh, are to build, we think, digital infrastructure, international infrastructure. They announced, for example, the National Infrastructure Bank in, in the spending review. We need to see that happen. We need to get 5G everywhere. It totally transforms the ability of businesses and people to connect. We've already seen during the pandemic, some people have had great connections, some people have had problems. Those people are, are falling behind. It's happening with school children, it's happening with small business, it's happening with communities. Mm. Falling behind our 5G could see us lose out on £173 billion of growth over the next decade. So 
So this kind of investment is vital. The second thing is we've got to do this regionally, Carolyn Roger. We've got to. We talked, I think, before last time I was on this program about, mm. about our digital dialogues. And one of the things that we've done is, is, is identify this thing called local digital capital. This is eight things that regions need to understand and nations across the UK that they need to measure and they need to make sure they're getting excellence in. And those are things like digital skills, which we've just talked about, digital adoption for small businesses, funding for, for startups, new businesses, people transferring, people are increasingly looking to build a business themselves or to build a digital part of their business. We've also got to get the connectivity, the 5G point mm-hmm. that I've said, and we've got to get the communication collaboration throughout the region. Has, but what, has, yeah, sorry. Go on. I would say, what about the, the health sector in all this, the health and care sector, Julian? Because uh, it's an area where tech could make a big difference at the point where it desperately needs it. We know the health sector is under immense pressure. Uh, is this something where, where your industry really could accelerate digitalization of that in a way that would actually make a real difference? Absolutely. And we just published a 10-point plan. You'd expect us to do this kind of thing. But seriously, these are the things where health tech, med tech, can actually transform outcomes for people. Care. I mean, you know, we've shown just how badly we've fallen uh, behind in some areas of care, some parts of our community, some some uh, parts of the, of the country, that the health care over the years has not been good enough. Tech can transform that, and it can make it accessible to everybody, as well as bringing these fantastic new innovations, inventions, discoveries. I mean, the whole vaccine program was really mm-hmm. driven by... Uh, technology, you know, different ways to, to invent vaccines, different ways to bring them together. And then you've got the more classic stuff about digital identity and knowing who's had the vaccine, who hasn't, who's who's in particular communities that you can do analytics on this and say, OK, we need to focus there, we need to focus there. So, yes, absolutely. Now, we've published that 10-point plan and we've already had good engagement from health ministers saying this is this is something we want to work with the industry on and we need to step up and make that happen. How has Brexit affected all of this? Um, because you talk about the kind of digitalization of small businesses. And so, I mean, many of them um, are, are so caught up in the red tape of Brexit that they've sort of stopped trading with the EU. Is that something that is kind of relevant within the IT space, that perhaps if we could improve digitalization, that actually all of this would get a lot easier? I mean, the government seems to have singularly failed with the sort of IT problem-solving side of doing business with the EU post-Brexit. Well, you're absolutely right, Caroline. It, the, the technology, digital tech can help so many things. Um, I mean, there's, uh, again, a, a survey published. Our, our uh, survey showed that if we could get all of the SMEs in the country up to a good level of digital services, we can increase economic output by $145 billion. Obviously, we're an exporting country. We're a trading country. So a lot of that is going to be to the big buying communities of the world, which is uh, not just the EU, also the US, Asia, India, other places like that. But we need to get it right. And you've seen already the problems uh, if you don't have systems in place. And I would point to a thing. We always take anything and we put tech at the end of it. And that can be a bit of fintech, health tech, et cetera, et cetera, ed tech. There's a new one which we really think is very significant. It's a thing called reg tech. And this is a tool that makes it online, makes it possible for companies to, to do things. People have used e-commerce sites, trading platforms, have seen export sales growing by more than 25% across five years. That's across the world. Obviously, there have been some, some issues that, that the Brexit um, uh, settlement have revealed. And again, we would say to government, you know, we have been talking to you about some of this stuff. We need to get these systems in place. We need to enable things digitally. The data adequacy agreement with the EU is an absolute cornerstone of that. We must be able to move data backwards and forwards with that huge market that we all want to trade with.
Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.